Welcome to another installment of the Judicial Notice Podcast, a project of the Historical Society of the New York Courts. I'm David Goodwin, a trustee of the Society and an editor of Judicial Notice, our periodical of New York legal history, recording in August 2020. Beginning in April 2019, the Appellate Division First Department, one of the four departments of the New York State Supreme Court's Appellate Division, the state's main intermediate appellate court, announced that it would begin hearing most appeals in four judge panels, an even number down from its usual five. With this move, the first department joined the second department, which had sat primarily in panels of four justices since 1978. The New York court system has metamorphosed many times in its 200-plus year history, and with court reform again being debated, more change might be on the horizon in the near future. With us today is Justice Alan Shankman, presiding justice of the Appellate Division Second Department, often called, and with good reason, the busiest appellate court in the country, with jurisdiction that covers three of the five New York City boroughs, all of Long Island, and Dutchess, Orange, Putnam, Rockland, and Westchester counties. Justice Shankman recently wrote a fascinating article, adapted for judicial notice, on the topic of panel numerosity. In simpler terms, how many judges hear each appeal? And because the Second Department's four-judge practice dates back to the 1970s, it has long been an outlier, or depending on your perspective, a pioneer, among the four departments of the Appellate Division. We will also be joined at the end of this recording by Judge Helen Friedman, the main editor of Judicial Notice and a former judge on the Appellate Division First Department. A quick disclaimer for our listeners, as part of my day job, I do practice before the Second Department and thus Justice Shankman's court as part of a legal services organization. Justice Shankman, welcome to the Judicial Notice Podcast. Justice Shankman, just to begin with the basics, can you tell us a little bit about your career and, in particular, your pathway to the bench? Well, if anybody looked at my bio on uh, the court's bio page, it would come to the conclusion that I can't hold a job. I started my career as a law clerk to Judge Jason on the Court of Appeals, worked as an associate with firms in New York City for about five years was a full-time professor at St. John's for about eight years, did my own practice firm in White Plains mostly, became Westchester County attorney, left that to join a big New York City firm, which I did for a few years, then joined a big for White Plains, White Plains firm, and then was elected to the bench 14 years ago. After a couple of years, I was appointed the administrative judge for the 9th Judicial District. And on January 1st, 2018, I was appointed by the governor to be the presiding justice of the Appellate Division 2nd Department. What is the role of a presiding justice of a department of the Appellate Division? What the uh, presiding justice does is a number of things, some of which are utterly mysterious to most lawyers. The things that are obvious are being the, the, you know, the chief judge, in effect, of the court and being responsible for the core function of the court, which is hearing appeals and getting appeals decided and leading the the benches when one sits. The things that are less obvious are the role of the presiding justice as one of the five members of the administrative board, which consists of the four PJs and the chief judge, as well as being responsible for the administration of the various ancillary agencies that are tied to the court. Uh, So we're responsible for the administration of the attorney grievance committee process, attorney admission process, for um, 18B counsel, and for mental hygiene legal services, which is the agency that represents persons who have or are accused of having mental disabilities 
in a variety of settings. I think we have in total in the second department, counting all of those agencies, about five to 600 employees and a, a wide range of responsibility. So why panel numerosity of all topics? How did this piece come into being? This all started from a request that I had received from the chief judge to speak at an appellate judge's program in 2019. At that point, the first department had just announced that they were going to start sitting in panels of four, and there was a great deal of discussion and ferment about what that really meant. So the the chief asked me to prepare what was intended as an after-dinner speech, probably not the most uh, scintillating piece for an after-dinner speech. And it actually became, because of programming changes, into an after-lunch speech, which might have been a little better, although people didn't have the benefit of any cocktails to aid their listening to the piece. And then uh, within a few days of having received uh, that request from the chief, I got a call from the Law Journal saying, we're hearing that you're doing the speech. We would love to see a copy of it. So what ended up happening, so I wouldn't have to do the same work twice, I ended up writing it as an article and then revising it to use as the basis for a speech. What um, I tried to talk about was not just immediately the issues in the appellate division, but to contrast it to other courts. So, for example, the United States Supreme Court has had a history of having as few as seven and as many as 11 justices. I looked at how the Court of Appeals became seven and naturally how the appellate division became five and what was intended by that. Was there a theme that emerged as to why different courts would have different numbers of judges? My analysis was that these numbers were hit upon to satisfy the political and governmental needs at the time these courts were created. The Supreme Court originally was created at seven because that's the number of districts that they had, and they wanted to have one Supreme Court judge for every district because they would ride circuit in those days. At one point, they went up to 11 because of issues relating to the Civil War and the conflicts that existed at the time. But then, because they didn't trust President Andrew Johnson and they didn't want him to have any appointments, they cut it back from 11 to the nine that we have now. The Court of Appeals at seven was a reformation of a predecessor tribunal that had eight. When the original Court of Appeals was created, they had this great idea, let's take the eight most senior judges from the Supreme Court and they'll be on the the Court of Appeals, which of course, since they were the oldest judges, led to a lot of uh, turnover because many of them could only serve a year or two. And you had created this issue about tie votes And there was also an issue going on that because the Court of Appeals was behind in its work at the time, that they had a commission on appeals and they had a, at one point, a second division of the Court of Appeals as ancillary tribunals to help the court deal with its backlog. Of course, then he created problems with with the court of last resort in our state, having basically two different tribunals coming up with different decisions. So they said, let's cut that out let's fix it at seven, and let's not do this anymore. So as I said at the introduction, the second department, now joined by the first, primarily sits in panels of four. How did that number come about, and what are the advantages and disadvantages of four-judge panels? Sure. Well, 
The predecessor court to the appellate divisions was something called the general term. And the general term sat in panels of three. In some courts in early New York history, there were appeals courts that consisted of just one. The original state, New York State Supreme Court, had appellate authority. And it was basically a panel of one in most instances. So we had this history of at the, when the appellate division came along of having one or three. And by that time, the Court of Appeals, which was constituted in 1848, had seven. So the framers, principally Elihu Root, wanted to figure out what would be a good number. And the number they came up with was five. Three might be too small for cases of the sort that the appellate division would get. They don't need seven to sit on every case because they're not the final, you know, the court of last resort. So how about five? The thought was that by having five, you'd have enough of a diversity of background and experience that lawyers and their clients would get a fair hearing before a representative body. Uh, although it was not intended that you would always have the same five on every case. When the uh, appellate divisions were created, each court, except for one, had one additional judge. The first department, which was then viewed as the overburdened court, based on what the experience had been in the general term, they got seven. So there were seven in the first and then six in the others. And the way Root described these extra judges is they were sort of like relief pitchers so that the workload would get dispersed fairly and you wouldn't have the same five people trying to decide thousands of appeals. Over the years, obviously, that seven uh, in the first has grown significantly, as has uh, the original six in the second department. We're at a point where we have 21 authorized seats counting the PJ. So the obvious question, why not three judge panels? Ordinarily, you'd think of a quorum as being a majority of the members, which would be three out of five rather than four out of five. But they set it for no apparent reason at four, which means that we can't go below uh, four. Uh, in the piece, I talked about the, some discussion uh, in the mid-70s that maybe we could reduce appellate division panels to three for certain types of routine cases, try to move them faster, but that would require a, a constitutional amendment, and there was very little interest in that. And by the way, three is the number that is used in the, you know, for uh, most federal circuit court appeals. So what was the rationale behind this uh, apparently ill-fated initiative to possibly move down to three judge panels? Simply practicalities. There's no secret uh, that by the mid 60s, late 70s, the mid 60s, early 70s, excuse me, the, the second department began to grow exponentially, a result of demographic changes that happened in, primarily in the post-World War II era. As, and so uh, rapidly, we, we encountered a circumstance where all, basically half the population of the state was in the second department. So the thought was, maybe we can help the second department by saying, let's sit in panels of three because you can get more mileage than you can the same group of people if they do it in groups of four or groups of five. So it was, a com it was basically a combination of expediency. If you want a, um, an alternative rationale, unlike the Court of Appeals, which is our court of last resort and has become basically a certiorari court, meaning for the most part, 
they get to take only the cases they want to take or cases that are deemed to be of uh, vital importance to the development of New York law. In the, in the appellate divisions, we have to take everything. But the thought was that perhaps there could be a category of case or cases where, where a panel of three might be sufficient to do the case justice, recognizing that most of the cases that are decided in the appellate division, while important to the parties, they're not going to be changing New York law or um, representing a major advance or retreat uh, on any legal matter. Although the second department sits primarily in panels of four, you don't seem to come to the conclusion that it's an inherently better number, but simply the number that works best for the present reality of the court. Do you think there's an argument for returning to five judge panels at some point, and is that something you'd like to see happen? Honestly, I would much prefer to have five if we could do so without compromising our calendar. And we do, in fact, sit in panels of five for certain cases. For example, uh, attorney disciplinary matters, excessive sentence cases. The flip side to the panel of five is this. The governor has made an effort to have a diverse appellate bench. So we have people from all walks of life, all kinds of backgrounds, ethnicities, experiences. And obviously you can't have all 20 judges sitting on one case. But the fewer judges you have on a panel, the more likely it is that you could have a panel that does not necessarily reflect the court as a whole. So for example, for many years, our court was majority female. Now I think it's roughly a tie. But you could have a panel that's all four men. It doesn't necessarily reflect the entirety of the court. So you can see how that could play out. Having a fifth judge does help make the court a little more representative. One immediate disadvantage that springs to mind with a lower number of judges is the issue of the sense. But as you write in your piece, that actually is less of a problem than one might expect. Can you explain why, and can you talk a little bit about why lawyers are concerned about dissents and four-judge appeals? The issue of dissent is far more important to the lawyers than it is, I think, to the judges. And we have to distinguish here between criminal and civil cases and final and non-final orders in civil cases. In criminal cases, the general rule is that you can't appeal until there's a conviction or a final decision. The rules for appealing to the Court of Appeals in criminal cases require permission. And that permission can be given by a judge of the appellate division who was on the panel or by a judge of the Court of Appeals. The practicality is that where there is a dissenting judge on the appellate division, that the lawyers are going to ask that judge for leave to let it up. And most often they do because naturally a judge who's in the minority would hope that maybe the Court of Appeals would vindicate their position. So the issue of dissent is not as meaningful generally on the criminal side on the civil, as on the civil side. On the civil side, while most categories of appeals as of right to the Court of Appeals have been eliminated, a remaining category is an appeal from a final determination where there is a two-judge dissent on a matter of law. So lawyers wanting the right to appeal rather than a permission to appeal would like to have five judges because then they would say, well, if we only have four judges, how can we get a two-judge dissent? So we, we took a look at that and said, well, first of all, 
in the second department where we sit in panels of four regularly because uh, that's what we have to do to cover our, get our caseload covered. We, we can't have a 2-2 decision. What happens is a fifth judge is vouched in. And so you can, you, and there are, any, there are some 3-2 decisions that, that we do have. But more broadly, I took a look at um, all the courts and found that basically in any given year, there's not more than 12 to 15 double dissents in each department. And considering that overall there are approximately 10,000 civil appeals a year, um, so less than 100 are going to have double dissents. And then you have to knock that back further because a double dissent doesn't count if it's not on a matter of law. So if the, if the judges are in dispute because it involved the exercise of discretion or a factual determination, that doesn't count. It also has to be a final decision. So the number of instances where lawyers have to be concerned that by having a case heard by a panel of four, they're going to lose a right to appeal as a right to the Court of Appeals really borders into the infinitesimal. The unknown, of course, is that when we're hearing a case, the lawyers don't know what the judges are thinking, and the judges can't be entirely sure how the panel's going to come out at the end of the day. So when you're hearing a case, you don't know whether that's going to be one of the very small number of cases in which there is significant disagreement. So the takeaway then is it's not something that happens often enough to really be something that most lawyers should worry about in a given case. That's correct. And the other thing that I point out in the piece that is a consideration is the longstanding practice in the Court of Appeals has been that if two judges want to let the case up, they will get the other votes to, to do that. So the way I say this to lawyers then is say, wait a minute, you're really that concerned about losing a, an appeal to the Court of Appeals? Because if you can't get two votes to even let the case go up, what's your point anyway? You're spinning your wheels. So I think this, this issue tends to be overwrought. How does the need to come to consensus affect disagreement on a multi-member court? This is probably the hardest thing about transitioning off a trial court. In the trial court, you're responsible for everything you say and do. And at the end of the day, it's only your name that's on the bottom of the piece of paper. On the appellate court, it's a um, committee product. And even though your name is on it, it's also on it with several other people. And it's signed by the clerk, uh, not by any of the individual judges. So it's important to remember that you're working collegially and you don't necessarily have to subscribe to every single word that is said as long as you're comfortable enough with the result. So that tends to mitigate dissent. Something I had never really considered before was that the fewer judges you have on a panel, the more you're at risk of being out of sync with the court's jurisprudence on a particular issue. And you mentioned in your piece an informal corrective process that the Second Department uses to avoid intra-court decisional conflicts. Can you talk a little bit about how that works? Now, here, the first and second departments have a little bit of a diverse history. The second department, going back to the days when Judge Mullen was the presiding justice, and possibly earlier, has always had an internal control system whereby our decision department will do extensive review of the proposed decisions before they go out and try to flag things that appear to be inconsistent and then there is a last chance final review process in which myself, a deputy clerk, some senior editors, and my law clerks 
five to seven people have a weekly meeting going over every single decision before it goes out, looking for inconsistencies or problems. And if there is one, then the matter is referred back to the panel to see if they, you know, we need to rethink it. The other thing we do try to do is when we see panel divergences, to bring them back to the entire bench and have a discussion, not about how the individual case should be decided, but about the principle of law and whether the principles of law should be settled. And we have a fairly good track record of once a majority of the court has settled on a view that people will try to uh, follow it because not to do so would really be unfair to the lawyers, to our own staff, and it builds delay. It also, frankly, becomes a factor in building caseloads because if you don't know what law is going to be applied to your case and you have a chance of saying, well, it could be this group or it could be that group, lawyers are going to say, well, let's appeal. And then it becomes not justice, but it becomes arbitrary based on the, the personalities of the individual judges that happen to be assigned to a case. We make every effort to try to be consistent. Some other appellate courts, such as New Jersey's Appellate Division and the Federal Courts of Appeals, have dealt with increasing caseloads by embracing non-precedential decisions, sometimes colloquially called unpublished decisions, which indeed they literally were at one point. Simply put, while those dispositions sometimes can be cited for their persuasive value, they are not binding precedent. Under New York law, however, unpublication of appellate division decisions is not even an option, and to my knowledge, there has never been a move to designate a second tier of less precedential opinions. Aside from the control mechanism you alluded to earlier, Justice Shankman, what options are there for avoiding jurisprudential drift or even mistakes when non-precedential opinions aren't really an option? Well, we do have some options. And I don't advocate that we should have non-published. I always thought that that was unfair because before the advent of Westlaw in the federal side, and I did do federal appellate practice. If you did enough federal cases or had enough friends who did, you could have access to the unpublished, even though you couldn't cite to it, your arguments could be informed by that. And then later on with the advent of Westlaw and publishing unpublished decisions on Westlaw, they were out there. And it became how much, you know, can you really be open about this? What we can do is it is permissible to affirm without writing. The law requires that you explain a reversal or a modification, but there's no requirement that you have to explain an affirmance. Back in the, when I first started practicing law in the mid seventies, and when I was clerking for Judge Jason, it was very common to see appellate division decisions that were affirmed. We would call them uh, anopax, order affirmed, all concur, no opinion. Um, sometime in the 80s, the bar kind of agitated to say, wait a minute, we took the trouble to take an appeal and uh, you're not even telling us why we lost. We, we should know why we lost. And more importantly, from a judicial perspective, you could be less rigorous if you're simply just affirming without having to explain. And so there is a value to writing. On the other hand, we have of late been uh, more circumspect in certain types of cases. 
where, where there is recent controlling precedent, one way or the other, we have done slips which just say, affirmed, see such and such. We have even done reversed, see such and such, with you know, a citation to the case and to the jump site to the page. The theory being that just by looking at the case and seeing what was said in that case, you can understand what the result was in this case. That actually is a very helpful thing for us to do because the less we write, the faster the decision can get out and the more decisions can get out. I don't tie that directly into panel numerosity other than one could make an argument that if you, the more people are on a committee, the more machinations you have to go through in order to get the final product out so that everybody is satisfied with it. You know, the old joke that a camel is a horse designed by a committee. So um, you could say it's a little easier with having one less voice in the room. You end your piece on a very strong note. There should be near universal agreement that the current circumstances are not acceptable. Both in terms of panel numerosity and more broadly, what are your top agenda items for pushing the courts in the right direction? I would begin by saying something that I've observed ever since I became a judicial administrator, like 12 or 13 years ago. As progressive as lawyers may like to think they are, they hate change. Getting lawyers to change any practice is like, you know, Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. When I look at it this way and I say, wait a minute, the second department is hearing like over 4,000 appeals a year. And we basically eliminated our criminal case backlog, but we have a significant civil case backlog. And it should not be that because your appeals in the second department, you may have to wait a year or more for your civil appeal to be heard. Whereas across the river in the first department, there's no delay, or in Albany, there is no delay. So how do we fix this? One thought was, well, we create another department. That involves a lot of expense. And there are a lot of people who don't like that idea. The other alternative would be to look at the kinds of appeals that we get. One of the great advantages, actually, of the New York court system is that we have on the civil side, basically everything that a judge does a judge could sneeze and you could take an appeal from that. And lawyers regard that as a good thing because if the case is, goes off the rails for some reason, it can be expeditiously reviewed. The problem is that if everybody's taking an appeals from everything, particularly in a court that has half the state's population in it, it is simply not possible to produce quality work within the time frame that everybody would like. It just isn't. So there are other alternatives, which again, nobody likes, which is there was a time when the second department transferred cases to the first, third, and fourth departments, and that created problems of its own. It is possible that judges from the appellate divisions in the, I would say, the third and fourth departments could be asked to sit as judges in the second department uh, from time to time. Nobody likes that either. And if you, know, if you talk to a judge from the third or fourth department, as I have, say, well, we're way too busy with our work. Their courts do less than half of what we do. On the other hand, they have fewer judges than we do to do that work. So you, you know, it's, a, it's an unwinnable argument to say who's busier. Can't, can't really win that argument. But so my point at the end was, you may not like the fifth department idea, 
You may not like the restriction on appeal idea. You may not like the transfer appeals to other departments idea. You may not like the transfer in of other appellate judges idea. But some combination of this needs to be done. The fact that there is little political will to do it is why this situation has festered, in my view, for years and years. But it's not going to get any better. And so if we really want to fix this, we have to get support to fix it in one of those ways, because those are the only ways that have been suggested um, and are out there. So you might not like all of the solutions, but you might need to at least consider some of them. Or, or one. Pick one. Are these solutions particularly daunting in the context of a busy intermediate appellate court when further review by the Court of Appeals is far from assured? The Court of Appeals, particularly since it became a certiorari court, has a relatively small volume of cases. I think over the course of, a, of their term, they may hear less than 150 cases. Uh, whereas the appellate divisions here, collectively civil and criminal, north of, I think, about 12,000. Now, what that tells me is that while the Court of Appeals is our court of last resort, the appellate divisions are effectively the court of last resort for most cases. And I remind myself, and I try to remind my colleagues of that every time we sit, because uh, particularly on the final orders, we have no way of knowing whether this is going to be one of the rare cases that is going to make it from our court to the Court of Appeals. Bearing in mind that if the Court of Appeals takes, say, 160 cases, and you assume that they come you know, equally from the four departments, that would suggest that maybe 40 cases will be from the second department. I think actually it's less because many of their cases come from the third department, not because of anything that that court is doing, but because of the fact that a lot of those cases involve governmental issues relating to governmental authority. And as a result, they get heard in Albany and therefore the appeal is to the third department. Obviously, the first department gets more commercial appeals, large dollar commercial appeals because of the commercial division in Manhattan. So I would say maybe there are fewer than 40 cases a year from the second department that go to the Court of Appeals. But because of that, we have to be very mindful that for the lawyers and their clients and the litigants, we may well be the Court of West Resort for their case. Justice Shankman, thank you so much for a really fascinating conversation. And now, without further ado, I pass the torch to Judge Helen Friedman, who has some things of her own she'd like to ask. Okay, thank you. Um, first of all, Judge Shankman, Alan, that was really a very interesting and thoughtful discourse on your part. I am very impressed with that, as I was by the article that you wrote, and I urge people to read it if you get a chance. Um, it gives a really interesting history of how the courts developed, how our courts developed, and moreover, gives you a perspective that you might not have had before. And frankly, let me start by saying, I always thought it was ingrained somewhere that you had to have five judges. And I note that I think we are going back to the five now, or the first department, which is where I sat, is going back to the five judges now that more judges are on the court. So there seems to be something that's sacrosanct in the first department thinking that we need five judges to achieve or arrive at 
just or fair results. Um, I'm not going to comment on that now because it would just take too much time. But I just want to ask one or two things, um, Judge Shankman. You mentioned that the appellate division is really thought of as one court, even though it has four divisions. And to that extent, I always thought that if one department has not ruled on a particular issue as a trial judge, I had to look to the decisions of the other departments. There is some question about that now. And are we still really one appellate division or are we really four separate courts? It's one appellate division. Uh, If anything, uh, recent developments have moved us more in that way with the adoption of more uniform practice rules and more uniform rules regarding attorney discipline. The cases, I think, are pretty clear that a trial judge is bound by a ruling of the appellate division, period. Meaning that if, if his or her home appellate division has not ruled, then they are required to follow the rule that is espoused by another appellate division. So that is true. Now, of course, that can be honored in the breach because if, let's say, the second department has a ruling uh, and the first department trial judge says, I don't want to follow that, those folks are all wet. And then it goes up on appeal to the first department. The more likely decision is going to be whether the first department agrees with the second department's rule and less about should the trial judge have followed the second department's rule anyway. So it may not be as readily apparent, but in theory anyway, yes, we're one court and trial judges are supposed to follow it. I just wanted to to back up and if I can cycle back to something, a thought that I had that was prompted by one of the things that Judge Friedman said. There are some practical difficulties that arise when you sit in panels of four. So let's say you're sitting in a panel of four and one judge uh, needs to take a break. The proceedings have to stop because if a judge walks out of the room and now it's a, whether it's a, a physical room or a virtual room, now you only have three. Whereas in the first department or in the other courts that have five, if one judge walks out of the room because of the need to address some issue, the other four can keep going. The other thing that happens, and I should mention it, is I alluded to the fact that if there's a 2-2 tie, what happens? And what happens as a practical matter is that the court will vouch in a, a fifth judge who will then have access to the record, the party's briefs, and now the video of the argument. And after he or she has weighed in on that um, the judge can, uh, you know, give the vote. It sometimes does happen, by the way, that after a fifth judge has been brought in, positions change again. And what might have been a 3-2 comes out as a 4-1 or a 5-0. So when you see the fifth judge being added to the case, it may be a sign of disagreement, but the disagreement doesn't always remain a disagreement. Uh, I'm sometimes asked, well, because I, I had this experience. I was designated to sit in a criminal case by the Court of Appeals because one judge recused. And it was fairly obvious when the court scheduled re-argument that the re-argument was primarily for my benefit. And the case ended up being four to three with myself being in the, you know, in the majority. Lawyers will say, well, why can't I argue to the fifth judge? And the answer basically is because the fifth judge has already heard the argument 
now because of our because the technology permits that to happen. What we do do is if the fifth judge believes that he or she would benefit by having the opportunity to ask counsel questions, the fifth judge can request that the case be re-argued. It doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. One other item that you mentioned is the interlocutory appeals that we have so many of in the appellate division. And I think that makes us, if not unique, unusual among intermediate appellate courts. Certainly in the federal courts, the interlocutory appeals, with some exceptions, are not permissible. And most other states, I don't think, permit interlocutory appeals, at least as readily as we do. Do you think that that would cut back substantially on the volume? And I say this because as a trial judge, I used to get very annoyed when the part, there were five causes of action and the lawyer, I ruled on five of them in a motion to dismiss or a motion for uh, partial summary judgment. And the parties immediately went up to the appellate division when my rulings would not have changed how the case would have proceeded in the trial court. Yet it caused tremendous delay in the cases. Um, As an appellate judge, of course, I took each appeal and read it and made an independent determination on that issue. But it seemed to me that many times that was just delaying the disposition of the case. How do you feel about that? I start with the premise that interlocutory appeals to me seem no more or no less inherently meritorious than anything else. Meaning that there are times when a judge has granted summary judgment or granted dismissal of the case, and that was the right thing to do. And that's a final order that's appealable as of right. And there are times when the judge has denied summary judgment when that was the wrong thing to do and condemned the parties to years of additional litigation. I I don't know that saying, well, look, how about if we could appeal these things by permission? It would only add to our existing volume of motions, which is overwhelming us in and of itself. Uh, Although I've done some things to try to curb our motion practice, we are still deciding nine or 10,000 motions a year. So to add another round of motion practice to get permission to appeal to us from an interlocutory order seems wasteful. What bothers me about these appeals, and my pet peeve, is not the appeal itself, but the consequences. Meaning in a no-fault case or in an automobile case, party moves for summary judgment before discovery is completed. Then the trial judge says, okay, denied, but I'll give you leave to renew at the end of the discovery. That makes me nuts. Because if you believe in a rule, which basically says you only get one summary judgment motion per case, and you feel that strongly about your motion, that you want to make it before discovery is complete, fine, but don't expect to get another chance. Because what that does is if the appeal fails, as often they do, then when discovery is complete, we get another motion and then another appeal. So it would be more advantageous, I think, we could curb some of this if people weren't given seriatim opportunities to make these motions. And, uh, and while I mentioned the personal injury car accident case, they're not necessarily the worst offenders. I mean, the worst offender may be the mortgage foreclosure cases where the plaintiff banks or lenders are given multiple opportunities to get summary judgment and they don't do it. That just breeds appeal after appeal after appeal. 
So I would be more sort of in favor of trial court practices that could more expeditiously deal with these. And by the way, Helen, what my practice was when I was on the trial court, said, you want to appeal to the appellate division, that's fine, but I'm not stopping anything. If they think it's important enough to stop, ask them. And if they tell me to stop, of course, I'll stop. But otherwise, I'm going to keep going. So the fact that somebody filed a notice of appeal, I thought what I did was right, and I'm going to keep going until the appellate division says do something else. There seems to be a rule in some courts that filing a motion or filing an appeal stays discovery. I think we've gone away from that. But at one point, that seemed to be the rule. And um, I absolutely agree. I did everything I could as a trial judge to avoid it. Um, Just one final small thing, and that is with respect to the five versus four, when you have a situation where judges recuse themselves for one reason or another. And I can remember times when I was on the appellate division when two judges would recuse themselves in a particular case. We then had to put more judges in. How do you handle that in the second department or is it not that much of an issue? It can be an issue, but it's, mo- it's mostly handled by peer pressure. And let me explain what I mean by that. Each of us has a standing recusal list. So when the clerk puts together the calendars, they know, okay, that I can't hear certain cases. The other judges on the panel can't hear certain cases. So those are handled accordingly. So those issues never get seen because they're handled administratively. The problem comes up when it's not obvious that there's a conflict. Suppose it turns out that I have a relative who is a witness in a case. I didn't know this. And I don't know it when the case is first assigned to me because the relative's name is not in the caption. But when I pick up the records and briefs, which could be a week or two before the argument, I say, oh, wait a minute, I can't sit on this case because I have a conflict because that witness is somebody I know uh, or is a relative of mine. So what happens in, in that instance is the judge who is the reserve judge for that day Every day we have a reserve judge, and the reserve judge is responsible for hearing, um, for example, stay applications that come in that day. The reserve judge will be asked to step in on that case, often with less than ideal notice. How much less than ideal notice depends upon how diligent the judge who has to recuse was in picking up the recusal. That's why I say it becomes a matter of peer pressure, because one of, the, one of the pluses or minuses, depending upon your point of view of being the PJ, is that I generally don't have reserve duties. So this doesn't happen to me. But if it was me, for example, and I was the reserve judge, and I get a call the day before the argument, hey, we need you on this case because judge so-and-so recused, I might not be thrilled that I'm being told this the day before. I might have a different reaction if I was told this a week before. So when the recuser is then the reserve judge, if the recuser has alienated colleagues, they some, you know, it's possible that they could, you know, do unto others as others do unto you. So um, peer pressure tends to resolve that issue. That's what I meant, Helen. In the first department, we didn't usually get our records until a week before. 
So it would have been hard sometimes to pick up that uh, particular type of basis for recusal. And from time to time, I can even remember situations where something came up at an oral argument that caused one or another of my colleagues to feel he or she had to recuse him or herself, which meant that with the remaining four, we could continue. Um, if that had happened with a four-judge panel, I think somebody would have had to have been vouched in afterward. Um, it didn't happen very often, though. We always want to make sure that the vouched-in judge has an opportunity to participate in oral argument. Um, there are rare occasions where we will adjourn or reschedule an argument, either because a lawyer has an issue or a judge has an issue. And what we typically do is we, we typically... We hear cases every day of the week except for Wednesday. Wednesdays are our conference days. And what will happen is if there's a need to adjourn a case, then it'll be put on for an approaching Wednesday. And uh, that way the panel, you know, can gather. It's not that big an issue. The bench is very, very collegial. People try to get along and we all have a lot of work we have to do. And uh, nobody wants to make more work for themselves or anybody else if they can avoid it. So we tend to manage these situations fairly well, I think. Justice Shankman, thank you so much for joining us today and for taking the time to speak with us. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast and you'd like to learn more about judicial notice and the Historical Society of the New York Courts more broadly, I encourage you to check out the other podcasts on our channel and to also visit us at our website at history.nycourts.gov. The Society does a lot of interesting and important work that's well worth your time, ranging from preservation of historical records to highlighting interesting and unique facets of New York State's legal history. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe, stay well, and have a wonderful rest of your summer.